Thanks for listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is William and I'm the Executive Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee and our heart is to reach the city through loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We recently launched a new building campaign called Building Opportunities. Over the years, we've seen God do some incredible things and we're excited about this next step we're taking as a church. To learn more about the building campaign and to see how you can be a part, visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Uh, we're, we're doing a, um, kind of a one-hit wonder this morning. Uh, actually, so we got this to kind of tell you the, the, some of the future of, of what our summer is going to hold. Uh, we're doing um, kind of a one-time thing. Next week, uh, we're going to have a guest speaker. He is one of the most fantastic, one of the most gifted people. Uh, in fact, he was my mentor for a long time and still is in many ways. His name is Rashad Thomas or Rashad Shabazz Thomas. Um, for those of you guys who know Big Roche, um, you shouldn't call him that when he shows up, but you could. It'd be funny. It's like you come to someone's name Stuart and you call him Stu first time you meet him. Um, so he's going to be speaking next week. And then we are doing a couple different things, going over a couple of different books. We're starting the summer in the book of Jonah. So if you are not familiar with the book of Jonah, even if you are, there's some extraordinary things in the book of Jonah. But today we are going to talk about one of my favorite things to talk about. It is to try to tackle or give you the Christian answer behind um, the question that all of religion poses. In other words, there is a central question. If you study religion, if you study all the different religions in the world, one of the things that I was blessed to be able to do was to study religion at Florida State. And in that study, it's from an academic, scholarly standpoint. It's not from a Holy Spirit-driven standpoint, you know, necessarily. And in that, you learn all kinds of different religions. You learn not necessarily all of them, but you learn little bits and pieces or kind of some, some groundwork for a number of different religions. And in my studies, and in fact, Pretty much anybody who studies religion, there is a central question that all of religion aims to ask and answer, and every religion answers it differently. Now, here's where that's important. A lot of people will stand up and say, hey, every religion's different. This religion's completely different than that religion, completely different than that religion, completely different than that religion. That's, that's a little bit disingenuous, and here's why. There is tons of overlap in the principle and the application of different religions, most religions have some type of a tribute or a respect to or an, uh, some kind of a higher power, a God that you would honor God. Almost every religion in some way, shape, or form has some type of a um, love of neighbor, a love of other people, uh, putting other people first, you know, doing things for other folks. There are a number of different things. Acts of charity, acts of kindness, acts of generosity are pretty ubiquitous in any religion that you study. But almost every religion aims to answer one question centrally, and in that answers it differently. And here is the question that almost any religion you study is going to try to answer. How do I find myself in God's good graces? How do I find myself in God's good graces? The implications play out in a number of different ways. Now, my point this morning is not to try to say, and here's why everybody else is wrong. That's, that, I'm not as arrogant to be able to say all of that. But I just want to give you the Christian answer to say, how do I find myself in God's good graces? And the reason this question is important is because with so much overlap in a number of different religions, each religion that answers this question answers it differently. And if there is a God, and if there is a way to gain a right standing or a right relationship or being found in his good graces, it's important for us to know how to do that. Because there is a best way or a way to find ourselves in God's good graces. In other words, for my wife, let's just take an example. 
There is a way, if I have been done something to, to cause a rift, you know, I didn't do the dishes or something happened, I've been working too much and not enough time at home, and there's a rift in our relationship, there's a way for me to find myself in my wife's good graces. Now, we might answer that differently, but for me, you know, it would probably be something along the lines of, you know, get flowers because you haven't done that in a while, go on a date because that's important, you know, spend some more time at home because that's important. There would be a, some, some stuff that I would need to do to find my wife and, and my my wife and God's good graces, myself and my wife's good graces. Now, the answer would probably not be, go play more golf. You should just go on a guy's weekend, and she'll just be so happy. Now, perhaps your marriage is in trouble, and that's like your wife's like, please go play more golf. You know, you just get out of the house. I'll be just fine. In fact, take the kids. I love them, but take them. So regardless of, of, of who you are, um, there is a way to find yourself, if you are in any kind of a relational rift with somebody else, to find yourself in that person's good graces. Well, relate, religion is essentially the same thing. It's how do I find myself? Because there is naturally, and most all religions will find this, a difference between us and God. And if there wasn't, I would be God. And if you're going to say that this morning, good for you, but that's a bold statement. I'm not God. And so there is a relational rift between me and God. And so how do I find myself in God's good graces. Now, what we're going to find is that you and I have the same tendency that the early church had in trying to answer that question. Essentially, what the early church often tried to answer that question with was let me behave my way into God's good graces. Let me act my way into God's good graces. Let me moral my way into God's good graces. They had a little bit different context than we do, but they still answer it in similar ways. In our day and age, we answer it similar to this. You find yourself in a right relationship with God by going to church more. You attend and attend and attend and attend and attend, and eventually you put enough, you know, as a, as a kid, you put enough little stickers on the Sunday school felt sticker board, and all of a sudden God says, oh my gosh, have you seen their attendance? They're like 96% attenders at our church. You know, holy cow, they get into heaven. None of us really say that, but we kind of look at God and say, okay, how many times have I attended church? I've kind of been, you know, if you're in the Baptist world, been backsliding, hadn't been to church in a while. For some of us, you were raised um, in, in stuff like youth choir, which is not God's gift to Christian but we have adopted that somehow or you're the person and God bless you if you were this but I just pray for you and your children if you're the handbell choir we have any handbell choirers in here okay yeah somebody's stoked Devin Lynn is like the only person she's like I hate when you make fun of handbells because I love handbells I'm like okay you are by, by far the minority because somebody somebody just all of a sudden decided okay God's gift of salvation I'm gonna have little kids who have no clue what they're doing put on little white gloves and go ding you know and all of a sudden everybody's got all the fans are gonna look and say oh my gosh you know that's so fantastic but Here's what happens. Here's what happens. We think that the better we are, that the more that we attend church oftentimes, we think perhaps sometimes we're more involved in church activities. From time to time, we think the better we are as people, the more and the higher my morality is, obviously God would be more happy. Because, I mean, come on, haven't you read the Bible? I mean, especially, haven't you read the Old Testament? The Old Testament is full of things you can and can't do, can and can't do, can and can't do. And obviously the way to find yourself in God's good graces is by paying attention and realizing what you can and can't do in doing that. And the problem was, when Jesus came on the scene, he completely interrupted that train of logic completely just sent shockwaves into how people would understand their relationship with God. And 2,000 years later, we still have a difficult time conceptualizing how you and I find ourselves 
in God's good graces. Now, if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 3 as Thankfully, we're not the first ones to deal with this. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, to give you a little background, what was happening was really similar. In Romans chapter 1, the context was that there was this group of people called the Jews who were kind of God, the God squad of their day. Then there was the Gentiles, who was everybody else. They didn't have Abraham. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have any of those things. So in chapter 1, Paul addresses a lot of the Gentile folks. Now, here's what's significant about the Gentiles. Gentiles were the outward sinners. Gentiles were the people who everybody knew they had a past. Everybody knew they had a history. Everybody knew what they had done in the past. The the Gentiles were the people that when they come home for family dinner or whatever they're coming home for, for for the holidays or for whatever purpose that they're there for, they're the one that grandma says, bless their heart. You know, because everybody in the family knows that person's a weirdo. You know, they've been doing some stuff. They've got history. And that was the Gentiles. So Paul, in chapter 1, addresses the Gentiles and said, let me just tell you something that you already know. The Gentiles are sinners. And everybody said, whoa, new information. We already knew that, Paul. And in chapter 2, makes the argument that not only are the Gentiles sinful, but the Jews are sinful too. The Jews who had a really, really good exterior. The Jews who outwardly had this sense of morality, had this sense of godliness, had this sense of religiousness, because they would follow all the rules, all the laws, all the things that God had said to do to their best of their ability. And nobody was perfect, they understood that, but they had the outside pretty well done. Internally, maybe some more sinfulness, but externally pretty decent. And Paul's cumulative argument through chapters 1 and chapter 2 are basically to get everybody to the point to realize, I am sinful. In fact, Paul would say it this way. Both Jews and Gentiles fall short of God's perfection. This is how he says in chapter 3, starting at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now pause. When he talks about the law, he's talking about most of what Moses wrote down in the Old Testament. And as Moses wrote down things in the Old Testament, they would understand that this is what God intends. These are all the commands that's kind of typified in the Ten Commandments. But then it goes far beyond that hundreds and hundreds of laws. But if you want to be perfect, this is the, this is the basic requirement of God. These are the laws. So he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, a.k.a. all of us. Because we are all under the law, Jews and Gentiles. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. Now, essentially what he's saying is this. That God gave the law in the Old Testament. That God gave this rules and regulations. God gave this moral structure and framework. All the things you can do, all the things you can't do. And when I compare myself to that standard, I found myself... Accountable. I find myself sinful. That the people with a huge past and the, huge, and the people with just a little bit of a past all find ourselves to have fallen short of that perfect standard. The significance is especially if you're in here and you have a huge past. I mean, you've got a past that would just, holy cow, you've been through some stuff, you've done through some stuff, you've decided some stuff, and you walked in here I'm not even sure if we'd let you in because of your past. Here's what Paul is saying. You're no different than the person who walked in and who has been attending church their entire life. We all share a common problem. 
And that's we're sinful. We all share a common reality. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, that we're all sinful. There is not a morally superior in terms of gaining your salvation, in terms of gaining your access to God, that not one of us has the God market cornered in terms of accessibility because of the way that we have behaved. Because I've been so good, because I've been such a good person, that God says, oh my gosh, they have access to me, but this other person don't, doesn't. Because the Jews thought they had been so accessible to God, they had been so obedient to God, that all of a sudden they had this great access to God that the Gentiles did it and God says, come on, you know that's not true. You know that every person in this room is a sinner. But we all share that. He continues and says this. He says, for by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. In other words, and so nobody's going to find themselves good in God's sight because of the fact that we earned it, that we deserved it. Because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And we're all sinners. And God, in his perfection and in his holiness, is perfect, is pure, is righteous, is just, is holy. And not that you're a scumbag, but part of the human condition is that we're sinful. We have chosen to be disobedient. And because of that, we are incongruent with God. Because of that, I can try to do some good stuff. But the only way to get in God's good graces is perfection. (laughs) And I ain't perfect. In other words, in the economy of God, C's don't equal degrees. C's don't equal salvation. B pluses, A plus. I mean, come on. He says, you have got, if you want to find yourself in God's graces, because God is holy, because God is righteous, because God is pure, it's not the end of the life. I sit on a scale, and whichever one outweighs the other one is the one that wins. If I've got a little bit more good than a little bit of bad, then, hey, I'm doing pretty good. If, if it was, we should all just keep an Excel spreadsheet, like, okay, good, 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 bad. Man, I got some bad I can accrue up because I got way ahead in the good category right now. He says, no, 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 no. It's not how that works. No one is going to find themselves acceptable to God, which, let's be honest, begs the question. So then why do we have all these rules? Come on. In our country, the reason that we have rules is so that we can know what is acceptable so we can act with the freedoms that we have in our country. The reason for rules is so that we can be approvable. So if... I can't earn my way into God's good graces. Why in the world would God give us rules in the first place? Because every requirement I have, I have to know how well I have to perform to be successful, to pass, to be okay. And come on, isn't religion the same? Now, what Paul says next, if you're not familiar with this, might be the revelatory moment. This might completely change the way that you view God. It did for me. Because here's what he says next. He says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Here's the sentence. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, The purpose of the rules and the regulations, the purpose of the moral framework was never for us to try to prove ourselves to God. It was to prove to us that we can't be good enough. It was not for us to try to earn. It was to make us acutely aware of our inability to earn. It was to say, if you want to try to earn your way into God's good graces, 
Here is the list of things you got to do. Here are all the requirements you have to meet. Here are the things as a person that you have to do if you're going to earn your way in God's graces, which all of us fall short, unanimously fall short. And he says, come on. That was the reason for the rules. The morality, the attendance, the dedication, the obedience was never meant to be the way that you and I access our Heavenly Father. It was to prove to us that we needed another way. That we would be found guilty in our own works. This means, perhaps in all of our proving, we've been going for the wrong reason the entire time. Thinking that maybe God would be happy with us if we did enough. Now, Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave it there because at that point it would be like, okay, well, cool, let's go home and pray. Um, I hope I find out how this works. So verse 21, but now, but now, the righteousness of God, important phrase, the righteousness of God, meaning the right standing with God, the way that you access God, the way that you find yourself in God's good graces, the way that you and I can look at a holy, extraordinarily holy God, extraordinarily pure God, and find ourselves in a right standing with him has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, it's been made known, and it's not by the law. It's a whole different set of things. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, here's why that was so important for their day. Now, again, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience in chapter 3. But as he says this, they would have had the natural reaction, which would be simply to say, okay, so you're telling me there's this whole new thing. What about the last 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 4,000 years, where God has been speaking to the nation of Israel over and over and over and over, rules and regulations, rules and regulations, rules and regulations, rules and regulations, rules and regulations. Did God just change his mind? And Paul would say, no. All of the law and all of the prophets point towards this idea. In other words, he would say, go back and read the Old Testament through this lens and see if you don't see that the entire Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets point to this. They were simply setting up this idea that we can't good our way into God's good graces because we ain't good enough. But God has made a way. Apart from it. That all of those things point to. He says the righteousness of God. The right standing with God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. For there is no distinction. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words he says this. So, so this is how this works. That we believe that God saw us in our sin. God saw us in our inability and did not hold that against us. In our inability, he saw us, did not hold it against us. Instead, did the most loving thing that he sent his son to die for us in the middle of our rebellion. That's crazy. This would be like, I heard somebody say it on Facebook this way, so shout out to social media. But he said it this way this week. This, this, just think about this. He said, this is like a husband Deciding to marry a wife and on their wedding day standing on the altar knowing every single day for the rest of their life he was gonna che- or she was going to cheat on him and still deciding, I'm going to marry that person. God seeing us know that we would continue to sin, knowing that we would continue to go in rebellion against him, knowing that we would continually, if you're a Christian here or not a Christian, that we all on daily, on a daily basis make decisions to go apart and away from God. We know the good we ought to do, but we don't do it and it's sinful. We know this is what God's called us to and we choose other things and that's sinful. And he says, come on, God did not hold that against us. 
He saw that. He acknowledged that. He didn't say, how dare you? He said, let me give my son for you. And on the cross, Jesus took the judgment and the wrath. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment and the shame that we should have gotten. That he was the sacrifice to make the relational repair that we could not make. We in and of ourselves were unable. <laughs> this, is like, this is like, again, when you're 10 years old and you realize it's 9 o'clock at night and you've got a science or a project. And you realize there ain't no way this is happening without mama. Jesus saw it. He said, you know what? God saw it. He said, you know what? In light of that, I'm going to send my son to die for anybody and for everybody. This is how he, he, he ends this. Because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, and everyone is justified through this because everyone is sinful. There is not a person in here who has outkicked the coverage of the love of God. There's not a person in here who stands and says, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but I've got this mountain of sin. Jesus would look at it and say, hey, let me just tell you, every single person is separated from God because of our sinful decisions. But in light of that he sent his son he did not hold it against us he decided instead to justify us he decided to said instead to say to look at us and say not only are you not guilty not only are you innocent but you now are sons and daughters you have been adopted because of the blood the propitiation through the blood that god saw us took the sin and the punishment that we should have taken on the cross and offered the forgiveness of no matter who you are and where you're from. It's not about what you do or what I do. It's about what Jesus has already done for anybody and for everybody who believes who puts their faith. By faith, I mean your belief. Your belief in the fact that you are, unable, you are incapable and unable, but Jesus is ultimately capable and ultimately able to do that. Now, what's, what's happened almost every time Paul says something like this is there's a number of people who are from the religious group that would say, hold on, Paul, I got a question. So you're telling me it's not about what you do. You're telling me it's not about morality. You're not telling me it's not about attendance. You're telling me it's not about living this godly life. It's just simply about this belief and this faith and this hope in Jesus. Paul, don't you realize that if you say that, people can do whatever they want and claim forgiveness? Don't you realize that if you say that, people can just say, okay, I believe in Jesus, and now I'm going to go do whatever the heck I want. Paul, don't you realize, in fact, almost every time Paul communicates the gospel this clearly, he has to go back and clarify what that means on the other side of it, because people would have the same reaction, which is to say, so if it's not about morality, then what are we doing here? I mean, come on, if it's not about living this life, then, I mean, can't everybody just, isn't that a license to sin? Paul would say this, no, of course not, because what happens is when we place our faith, our hope, and our trust in Jesus, not only are we forgiven 
Not only is there a transaction, not only are we adopted as sons and as daughters, but what happens is we believe that our heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, that we go from death to life, and the Holy Spirit comes down and resides inside of us, compelling us to live a life that glorifies God. That, here, here's the difference. Morality says, do this and prove your way to God. You have to, you have to, you have to. Christianity says, I want to. I want to glorify God. I am so thankful for what he's done, and I am compelled by the love of God. I am compelled by the Holy Spirit to do that. The reason I do things for my wife is not because I have to. It's because I love her. It's because I'm compelled to do that. It's because I've dedicated and devoted my life to her. It's because I know at the end of the day I want to make her happy. Not because she sat down and said, okay, if we're going to get married, here's the, here's the schedule of how often I need flowers and date night. And by the way, coffee, you know, I like a Starbucks, you know, mocha frappe, a latte, skinny, chai. You better have that down. No, that'd be ridiculous. What we believe is the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. And, and as it lives inside of us, it, it, it compels us to live for God. This is why Paul would say in Galatians that I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives inside of me. In other words, Jesus is living and moving and breathing inside of me. And if the Spirit of God is breathing and moving and living inside of me, it's going to compel me to live for him. Because my life has been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Come on, This is like, this is like if we take it out of the spiritual context, we'll kind of... But take it, you know, let's just say I woke up tomorrow morning and I said, man, the spirit of the God of basketball is inside of me, right? And that sounds ridiculous, but go with me for a second. And I'm saying, you know, man, LeBron who, you know, Kobe Chump, you know, MJ whatever, like the spirit of the living God of basketball is inside of me. And it compels me to be the greatest basketball player on the history of planet Earth. And you said, man, that's awesome. You want to go play basketball? <laughs> it's like, no, let's go play golf. You know? That'd be silly. It'd be like, of course. Because if, if the spirit of the God of basketball is living inside of me, I would be compelled. I would be driven. I would be everything to be able to do that. And I would be compelled and driven to go live that and become everything that God had become, made me to become. In the same way, obviously the God of basketball doesn't exist. You, you're smart people. You get that. But the point is, is God compels us to live a life that glorifies him. That is the freedom that is in Christ. That you don't have to, you want to. You don't have to, you get to. We aren't made to, we are created and compelled to. As the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, lives inside of us, moves inside of us, breathes inside of us, compelled to live a life that glorifies God. We have come too far post-Jesus to still struggle with this idea it will let me earn and earn and earn and earn and earn my way. Work, work, work. Attend, attend, attend. Moral, moral, moral. I think it's particularly difficult for us, by the way, because we live in a culture and society where everything is earned. Grades, work, promotion, it's all earned. But God gave it to us. He said, look, you want to try to earn it? Here's the law. But in that law, here's what you're going to find. You are incapable of earning. So don't you dare try to earn your way into God's good graces through a way that was never meant to be there. The purpose of the rules, the purpose, the role of rules in the Christian life is simply to make us aware 
that we can't earn our way into God's good graces. And upon that realization, realizing that there is another way. So practically, let me me tell you how this works. If you walked in here, happens every Sunday. If you walked in here perhaps for the first time, or the first time, second time, third time, first time in a long time, and you thought, you know what? I don't know if they'll let me in. If they knew what I had done, if they knew my past, if they knew my last season of life, if they knew my sinfulness, they probably wouldn't even let me in the door. If you have ever thought that when you walked into a church building, here is the great news for you. You are on the precipice of an extraordinary discovery that that was never the way that we were intended to find ourselves in God's good graces. And you, the reason, the reason is important, that means you are already aware of your inability and my inability to earn our way into God's good graces. And God saw that, did not hold that against you, but sent his son to die for you, that we could freely and openly love and live and be compelled to be the people that glorify God as his spirit moves and breathes inside of us. The central way, the answer to the central way for Christians that we find ourselves in God's good graces is by placing our faith, our hope, and our belief that we are incapable, that we are not good enough, that God saw that, sent his son to die for it, paid the price that we couldn't pay. And in doing that, as we place our faith and our belief in him, we have a righteousness with God. He comes and dwells inside of us and gives us the power and the ability to become the people that he has called us to be in the first place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray and I ask that you would help us to get this, not just conceptually, God, that on a real and a deep level, we would know that there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves good enough for you. And God, you were never more pleased with us than when you died on the cross for us, than when you sent your son and he hung on the cross bearing the judgment, the shame, the guilt, all the things that we should have gotten. And God, for some reason, we still try to earn our way as if that wasn't enough. Jesus, would you please bore into our hearts and our minds the fact that, Jesus, ultimately you are the only one sufficient enough to forgive our sins. You came, you proclaimed, you died, taking away sin, taking away, and God, you rose from the dead, substantiating the entire thing. We thank you for that. And Jesus, we place our faith and our hope in you. The bedrock of our church, the bedrock of Christians across the world, simply a belief in our ability and a simultaneous belief that Jesus you did what we couldn't do I pray that that would permeate every part of our life that would implicate every part of our life our life would be lived for you Jesus as the power of the Holy Spirit moves, dwells, breathes inside of us compels us to be more like you to glorify you not because we have to because we get to and because we want to. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.